It's so good to see you today. We invite you to come home for Christmas. Come home for Christmas. And as we look over to the next few weeks, you think, oh no, people are coming home for Christmas. It can be a little daunting, but all the things to do. Uh, yesterday after Santa on the fire truck, I was amazed. Many of you all know Chantel and I's two boys. They're grown now. They have lives of their own. They're working, you know, people of uh, good humans of society, uh, which we enjoy. Uh, but then when, we, when I finished up the Santa on a fire truck deal, I looked at my young staff and I was about to work on the sermon some more. And I was like, what are you doing? Well, uh, this one had a basketball game. This one had like indoor soccer, another basketball game, a dance recital, this, that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm tired just listening to you, uh, much less going. I know that when it comes to Christmas time, we can be tired. How many of you all are um, hosting Christmas this year? Like it's, it, you're, you're, people are coming to you for Christmas, right? Good. How many of you all are going somewhere else for Christmas? Yeah, good. How many of you all are going multiple places for Christmas. Oh, God bless you. That's just terrible, right? This place and that place and this place and there, and you got to leave this one early to get to that one late. Oh, my goodness. Good on you. So, I, I mean, right? It can, be, it can be difficult when we look at Christmas. And so, um, we're in this series, um, Come Home for Christmas. This week, it's Come Home uh, to Hope, to Hope. And so, we need hope. Because our world is hard and it seems like it's getting harder all the time. And one of the reasons we need hope is because we do live in a broken world. And it's always been that way. So week one, um, we talked about come home from a broken world. Um, That's what Pastor Robert shared with us the first week of this series. Come home from a broken world. And it's interesting to me that it's certainly been argued that the world was most broken when Jesus came. He came into a culture where King Herod had killed all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under. Which basically means there's Jerusalem and Bethlehem is just six miles away. And so if you were pregnant or had an infant any time in the last 18 months to two years, you had to run for your life. Because that's how ruthless the king was. Anything that he was paranoid, anything that, you know, showed any sort of threat to his throne, he would just kill them. It was said in that time that it was better to be Herod's pig than a son. You, you might last longer. And so it is into that harsh reality that God and God's wisdom sent his only son, Jesus, into a broken world. Not a world that was fine, but a broken world so that you and I can live in a new world that has no end. The kingdom had come. God's kingdom has no boundaries, no ending. It's a new kind of kingdom. And this is encapsulated in the Gospel of John. Uh, The good news, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that, read it with me, everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son Jesus into the world to condemn the world, no, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So that was week one. In week two, we looked at the main stopper of living into this kingdom and God's new world order and God's kingdom is fear, right? It's just simply Fear, false evidence appearing real. And there are lots of things that we can be afraid of. And that might be why uh, in the Bible you find that the one statement Jesus made more than any other, uh, you know this, say it with me, don't be afraid, over and over and over again. And we'll see that uh, in the story today. The first thing the, the angel basically says to Mary is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
Um, outside my office, when we began the church, uh, I've kept this scripture in front of me. Um, I was 31 um, when we started uh, Acts 2 back in 1999. And I, and I would try to read this every day. I would put it up where I couldn't really get into my office without reading it. Uh, it goes like this from Second Timothy. For God did not give us a spirit of what? Cowardice. Nope, that's not who we're to be. But rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. That's what we need. We need God's power, God's love, God's discipline to do the things that he has for us to do at the time. He doesn't show us all of it, just a bit of it, a day at a time. And if you're a dad or a husband or um, perhaps a single mom, maybe you've asked yourself, does anybody love me for me? Or am I just a paycheck? Am I just here because I do stuff for people? That's why they love me, because they'd be in a hard way if I wasn't. People ask that sort of question. They don't say it out loud, of course. They just think it and they wonder uh, Max Lucado puts it like this. He says, we fear coming and going and no one knowing. Like, would anybody notice if I wasn't here tomorrow other than maybe the kids that I feed or the family that I support? And that leads us to this really dark place within ourselves where even those moments of hope, the moments of joy, the things that we know that we're supposed to look forward to, like Christmas morning or Christmas Eve candlelight or birthdays or anniversaries, we start to hold back. Hope, because it's too painful if it doesn't happen this time. Sometimes because it hasn't ever happened before and you just don't want to hold on to that hope anymore. We start to self-protect ourselves because we're not really sure if our family's going to come through. And behind that, if God's going to come through for us. But there's a huge problem with that. And that is that when I protect myself from hope, I rob myself from the joy and promise God has for me in the present. I can't show up in the present if I don't have any hope. I just, I just back up. Now, to be fair, those of us who've lived a long time, we have reason for this. We have experience where things have been so hard, we don't want to be there, much less think about it. I was in such a time uh, in 2015. We'd been in this building about a year, um, and we had uh, workers in Turkey that were helping us care for Syrian refugees. Most of the Christian Syrian refugees had gone down to Jordan, um, and those, uh, basically the others, uh, mainly Muslim, um, atheists, or not really of any faith, uh, went north to Turkey because Turkey was welcoming them. It was one of the safe places they could go. And outside of Kusadasa, where our folks had set up, uh, there became refugee camps wherever they could. Uh, and we would go out and really to the wilderness where no one was. There was no protection for them, uh, but there's also really no one to bother them. And you'd find little children, almost no men, because the men were out still trying to find a safe place for their families to land. And the children and the women were simply at trash heaps. They would find a piece of trash, and they would make it a drum or a game or something else. These children uh, in filth without even shoes on their feet, or at least not both of them here, um, just you can see all the trash behind them, completely not safe, not sanitary. And heartbreaking. And you look at that sort of massive need. You're like, what in the world? How can we make any difference? It's it's almost as if, you know, I wanted to say, Jesus, why did you bring me here? This is way too big for anything for a little church in Edmond to do anything about. 
And we would go from place to place and we would come across hundreds of people in refugee camps made up of tarps. Whatever they would find at the trash heap or on their way. And they would make themselves homes. And they would raise their families. And again, you can sort of see the ratio. Here's a man, all these folks, and another man at the other end. Just trying to make it. Running from place to place. Place to place. And one of the hard things about mission is that when we go with our expectations in the West and what we think we need to do, sometimes it wreaks havoc, not help. So in a camp like this, not this one, but one like that in the heart of Kusadasa, some expats that lived there, uh, mainly Americans, um, some English folks, Scottish folks, some European folks, they were there and they saw the mistreatment of these people. And so um, they gathered together and they got supplies and they went and they helped them and they helped them, but there wasn't enough. And so they went to the government. They went to the mayor and they went to basically like the governor of that area. And they're like, look, these people need help. And, you know, they're in this park and we really, we want you to do something about it. Two days later, they were gone. The government had picked them all up, put them on a bus and took them out to the wilderness, dropped them off. Because they, did, they didn't want that kind of pressure and the people who thought they were doing good actually made it much, much worse. And this would happen from time to time over and over again. It took them about two weeks to walk back into cities so they would not starve. And it's into that sort of a system that we found ourselves. And you had babies holding babies, children raising children because their parents were either back in Syria or dead. And, and it was really more than my heart could take. And, and, and I want to tell you why and, and how this worked out. So we have our wonderful folks um, down here in Kusadasa. This is basically Ephesus, by the way. Kusadasa, Selchuk. Ephesus is the ancient city that we read about that's down here. You'd fly into Izmir. Uh, and then somewhere between Kusadasa and Izmir, out here in the wilderness, you would find these camps. Now, you would think that that's bad enough. But while I was there, what we found out is that there were actually people who would come into these camps and they would say to them, have you heard of Lesbos? And they've, of course, all heard of Lesbos because Lesbos is Greece. And that's a different sort of country that from where you could get into Europe and you could have a new life. That was the place to get to. And it's just, you know, not very far, you know, less than an hour uh, by boat, uh, if you're lucky, just to get there. I mean, this is pretty close as you can tell. And so they say, look, you come to us All you need to do is give me whatever money you have left, and I'll get you there. And so many did. And they came. They traveled up here. They took a boat. They went out. They circled around and came right back to Turkey and another place. And now they were worse off than they were before, but now they had nothing except... Two days of more hunger and nothing. And when you come across things like that, it does feel like a hopeless journey. You look at people and there's nobody to stop that sort of evil in the world. It just goes and goes and goes. And you feel hopeless. But here's the thing, friends. Hope is more than a feeling. It's more than a wish. It's more than a hope. So it actually takes our work. It takes our participation. It takes the people of God involved in the world of God to bring God's new order to the world, which is why Jesus came in this life and the next. Amen? That's what we believe. 
That God is always to work, make things new. And we're to be a part of that. So this hope that we talk about in Jesus, he didn't come to an easy life. He came to a very hard life, much like that. On the run as well, right? You, you know that from last week. It goes to Egypt. So hope then is an expectation. It's a trust. It's a desire for a good outcome. We don't know how it's going to work out. All we know is that God says he's with us and it will work out somehow. And so we don't know where God's going to call us to in any given season, but God does call. And of late, it's been to Guatemala. And last year when I was there, our team just got back last night. Chantel was on that trip. Many of you have seen. You have these young women, really teenagers, babies having babies, one after another after another. And you just wonder what's going to happen. We know that waterborne illness is, a, is the major killer of those people. Um, they have no clean water, and so the kids get sick and they die. Because even if they could put the Pedialyte together, uh, it's with dirty water that's going to kill them anyway. And so I came across this little girl, Milagros. Uh, she's five days old. Some of you may remember, I showed her to you last year. And here she is. It was ingenious. They got the mosquito netting, and they put it up on the rafter, and they keep her up off the ground. That's her mama, Maria. And... I wonder what, what's going to happen to that baby. But I know she has clean water and she would have clean water for the year. And she had hope that they didn't have before you all showed up there last year. And so hope is knowing God will show us what to do when we need to do it. Then show us all of it. Right? God never shows us all of it. If God did show us all of it, we wouldn't do the things he asked us to do. I would love to tell you that I would be faithful no matter what God showed me. But the truth of the matter is, it took from February of 1999 to July of 2006 before we ever had a building. And if God had told me, oh, by the way, you're going to be worshiping in schools for seven years, I'd be like, I'm out. I never saw that coming. I didn't know. But day by day, bit by bit, we got there. We got there. And that's how it is with God. And so we didn't know what was going to come next. But now we know that this year, right, what we found out is that Last year, we found out, yes, we gave them clean water, but they bought trees and plants and crops and with their own hand tools, worked through the beating sun to plant the crops. And you know what happened? They died, all of them, along with all their investment of those things because they didn't have any water. They had the clean water for them to drink, but it wasn't enough to water their crops. They didn't have a way to do that. They didn't have an irrigation system to do that. So this year, we went back to the same village. This time with solar panels so that the pump would, on its own energy, they don't even have to run a generator because there's no electricity out there. They now have a, a well with two pumps. They've got plenty of clean water for their people and they have an irrigation process so they can raise crops, have enough food to eat, and pay off the land that they bought from the government because they too were migrants, refugees coming to this area from a, a place north. So here's the thing that Tish Warren says. She says, to be a Christian... Is to honor ambiguity. Right? To not know the end of the story. To be a Christian is to honor ambiguity. It requires a willingness to endure mystery and to admit that there are limits to human knowledge. God has us on a need to know basis, and there's much, it seems, that we don't need to know. <laughs> really, we just don't need to know it. But let's make no mistake about it, friends. It is not hope in ourselves, it's not hope in our grit, it's not hope in our abilities or even our faithfulness. We don't have faith. And our faithfulness, we have faith in our group. We have faith in God. 
And, and Paul is very clear, writing to those very people around Kusadasa and Ephesus. He writes, for by grace, God's grace, you have been saved. Not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So friends, grace is given to us. It's a gift. It's nothing you can earn, but it does take great effort. Great effort. And this hope, it's not a hope in ourselves. It's hope in God, that God is faithful. It's not even hope in our church. It's not even hope in our own faith. And 1 John Uh, He gets it very, very clear for us. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, this this next slide is my dad's go-to verse. I would grow up hearing him say it almost every Sunday because this is the heart of the gospel. Read it with me. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. Not some of it. All of it. When we connect ourselves to Jesus, the future is in his hands and the future is good. So good. It's not on us. Bishop Berlin says it like this. Hope is the capacity to carry the expectation of the fulfillment of a task while working diligently. While working diligently and waiting patiently for an outcome that is in keeping with God's goodness, righteousness, and justice. So we're working alongside the vision that God has given us. And so you might imagine my joy uh, when Chantel uh, FaceTimed me uh, from the, the village uh, there was one spot in the village where she could talk to me here, not here, here, not here. It was just one little spot that she could get through. And so we connected, and what she was able to show me and send to me was that baby Milagros is just fine. Now, she's a year and five days old. Of course, I didn't recognize her. I recognized her mom, uh, Maria. Um, and Chantel was like, oh, and by the way, na, 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 na. I get to hold the baby. There she is. I was half surprised they didn't come back together. You know, just wonderful, beautiful hope. Hope. Changing lives, saving lives, making a difference. And it's this sort of situation, this sort of hope that we have in the story known as the Annunciation. Where God comes to Mary. A young woman not much different than these girls. The story goes, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, some people think of the angels like that. It wasn't that. This is a a rendition from the 1800s. There there really is no sense of that in in the New Testament story. Uh, I think it was much more like this by the artist Tanner. Holy bewilderment. Do not be afraid because that's kind of scary. It's like, oh my gosh, the power of God before me. It's not God himself, but it is a messenger. It's hard to know what to do with that. And New Testament professor Alan Culpepper writes, he says, what's about to take place, friends, is the unfolding of God's design for the salvation of all humanity, for all of us. Gabriel is just God's agent. The central figure in the Annunciation is neither Gabriel nor Mary. It's the gracious God of Israel. God is on the move. And this was no small thing because Mary, being 12, 13, 14 years of age, she was betrothed to Joseph, who would have been significantly older. And the beautiful thing about young people at 12, 13, 14, this is when they, in the Jewish tradition, would have their bar mitzvah, their bat mitzvah. Around here, we do confirmation. And there, because there's a beauty, a beauty and a purity and, and a power in young faith and vision and hope 
that can get tainted or lost as we age. And so it was this betrothal that lasted for a year, and it was as binding as marriage. And it couldn't be dissolved except by divorce. This was a big, big deal. Now, William Barclay, the biblical scholar, would say that they had this phrase that you could actually be uh, a virgin widow. Because if you were betrothed and the husband died, you were a widow, but you were also still a virgin. That's how they saw it. Super binding. So the other thing that Barclay says is that the Jews had a saying that in the birth of every child, there are three partners. The father, the mother, and of course, the spirit of God in ways that much of our culture has lost. But of course, that's true. They believe that no child could be ever born without the spirit. And we would believe the same. So the Christmas story in the Bible says this. And he came to her and said, Gabriel did, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, "Do Say it with me. Do not be afraid, Mary. For you found favor with God. Debbie Thomas, in her writing, she says, It is not that the Annunciation leads Mary out of doubt and into faith. No. It is that her encounter with the angel leads her out of certainty and into holy bewilderment. Out of familiar spiritual territory and into a lifetime of pondering, wandering, questioning, and wrestling. Faith's not about certainty, friends. It's about ambiguity and stepping into it with God having the results. And she doesn't have to be afraid. Why? Because the Lord is with you. Because she has favor with God. Therefore, she doesn't need to be afraid because the safest place to be in the universe is in the palm of God's hand, wherever you may be. So the scripture says, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, Savior. The Hebrew name for Jesus is Yeshua. It can be translated Joshua, which was you know, one of the major warriors, saviors of the, God's people. And Matthew puts a point on it in case we missed it. She will bear a son, Mary will, and you are to name him Jesus. Say it with me, for he will save his people from their sins. His very name tells us what Jesus has come to do. And of course, you and I in the Christian tradition, Christmas is not our major holiday. Shocker, did you know that? We're Easter people. No one in the tradition said, yeah, we're Christmas people. No, we're Easter people. And Christmas and Easter, they have to go together. Christmas makes no sense without Easter, right? If, without Easter, you're just another baby. Of course, without Christmas, you don't get to Easter. They go together. N.T. Wright says, Easter was when hope in person, I love that phrase, hope in person, Jesus is, surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into present. The ultimate future hope remains a surprise, partly because we don't know when it will arrive and partly because... We only have images and metaphors for it, leaving us to guess that the reality will be far greater and surprising still. What God has for you, what God has for the world, is yet to be seen. So good, so wonderful, the scriptures tell us. And Luke, the gospel tells us that Jesus will be great. And he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob how long? Forever. Forever. That's a new kind of kingdom. And of his kingdom there will be no end. No end. So this salvation that the Bible talks about, it refers to the strongly held belief of most first century Jews and virtually all the Christians that history was going somewhere. It's not just moving, but it's actually going where God wants it, under the guidance of God, and that where it was going was toward God's new world of justice, healing, and hope. That came in the resurrection. It remains with us in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we are to be about that work now in this life. Why? Because when Jesus comes back again, he's not going to destroy the world. He's going to redeem it. 
And we will have already been a part of that work with him. Does that make sense to you? It's important. We are to be about the life of the redemption of the entire planet because that's what Jesus came to do. To heal it all. To make it all right. Salvation and sozo in the Greek, look it up, it means wholeness. Healing. That's what Jesus came to do for you, but not just you. For the entire planet. So this transition from the present world to the new one would be a matter not of the destruction of the present space-time universe, but it's radical healing. That's our faith. So the future rescue that God had planned and promised in Jesus is starting to come true in the present. And Jesus said, what, what do you mean, am I the Messiah? The deaf hear, don't they? The blind see, don't they? The lame walk, don't they? The hunger you're fed, don't they? This is God's work. So again, Tish Harrison Warren would say, God is vaster and more mysterious than we can fathom. And yet he has revealed himself in Jesus. He showed up and told us who he is. God has spoken. And what he has said in Christ is that he loves us and is for us. That's the gospel. God loves us and is for us. And N.T. Wright says the New Testament is full of hints and indications and downright assertions that this salvation, this wholeness, isn't just something that we have to wait for in the long-distance future. We can enjoy it here and now, today, and be a part of what God's doing. So Mary says to the angel, how can it be since I'm a virgin? And the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be holy. He'll be called Son of God. And like Mary, we ask, how, how? I mean, really, how? And the answer is, of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by our doing. And God gives us clues and confirmation all along the way through the timing and coincidences. Or, as you might know, we call them God incidences. There are no coincidences. You know what God is doing by looking for the patterns and the timing and things coming together. And he did that for Mary, of course, in the place that would touch her heart most closely through her relative Elizabeth. So the scriptures say now... Relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, which was not supposed to be possible. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, John the Baptist's mom. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing, friends. Nothing. And so Mary sees it, and she goes to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth cares for her. And they're connected. And they begin to see that God is truly on the move to redeem the world. Again, New Testament professor Alan Culpepper says, The glory of Christmas came about. By the willingness of ordinary people to obey God's claim on their lives. Elizabeth, Mary, and you. Mary's response is the perfect prayer. The way Mary responds is exactly the way we are to respond. Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. That that should have a familiar ring to it. Barclay says that Mary's submission is a very lovely thing. Whatever God says, I accept. Mary had learned to forget the world's commonest prayer, your will be changed. Isn't that how we pray? And to pray the world's greatest prayer, your will be done. Your will, Lord, not mine. So when God saves people in this life, N.T. Wright says, by working through his spirit to bring them to faith and by leading them to follow Jesus, they are to be part of the means by which God makes this happen in both the present and the future. So it ought not surprise us that Jesus taught us to pray in the same way. In the Lord's Prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Say it with me. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the prayer that changes the world, friends. This is the prayer that makes the impossible possible, makes visions come true. So at the end of Jesus' life, before he goes to the cross, the scripture says, Jesus came out and as was his custom, 
to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He kneels down, he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me yet. Here it is again, say it with me. Not my will, but yours be done. Sounds like his mama, doesn't it? He didn't just think of that. That was his prayer all his life. He'd been praying that since the time he was born. Prayed over him and then by his own lips. It's just who he was, as natural as breathing. And it can be that way for you too. Not my will, yours. Whatever it is, Lord. So when we pray, not my will, but yours be done, God comes and he gives us strength. We we see this right there in the garden with Jesus. Not my will, but yours be done. And then immediately the angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. When you pray that prayer, strength comes by the power of God for you. You don't have to be afraid. Because when you're obedient to God, God shows up to give you exactly what you need to do. So here's the good news. Because our hope is in Jesus. Because of Easter. Our hope never dies. There's always hope, friends. Even in the most hopeless situations. The hopeless, the most hopeless situations. So you remember those folks in Lesbos, right? Here. Throw them back here. And so as we were working with these people, by the way, uh, you may not remember this, but, but this church, you and others, provided stoves for all the people in the wilderness so they could survive the winter. Wood-burning stoves so they could be there and, and make it one year until they could find a place. And they did. And it was in those conversations that we found out later that there was a group of college students, mainly girls, who'd come to work in Lesbos to help disembark people from the rafts and try to save lives that were on edge from the bitter cold and you know about to freeze to death and hypothermia and 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 starvation and so they went and they worked in greece and in in their tradition they were really there to evangelize because they knew that 99 percent of the folks coming were going to be muslim and they wanted to know about jesus the savior of the world and so they asked them as they fed them and they clothed them they helped them they said well we want to talk to you about jesus you know what they said We know about Jesus. How do you think we got here? When we were leaving Syria and the bombs were dropping on our left and dropping to our right, it was Jesus who came to us in our dreams. It was Jesus who came and said, go that way, not that way. It's dangerous this way. Go that way. And we did. And we survived. And then the next night he would say, go this way, not that way. And we did. And we survived. And now somehow by the grace of God, we are with you. Yes, we know Jesus. He talks to us in our dreams. In the same way that he did with Joseph when he said, go to Egypt or don't go back to Jerusalem. You need to go to Galilee. See, our hope isn't in ourselves. It's not even in our work. It's not even in our mission. It's in Jesus. And he shows up wherever he wants to. He does what needs to be done. And so you know what? Jesus shows up even in the middle of a refugee camp. And he brings people hope. And you see the hope in his smile. And he's going to be just fine. And I was amazed at the hope that children can hold on to. That their parents could share with them. In the harshest of circumstances. You've got to watch really closely here at this video. Very closely. I want you to see what kids can do. Whoop. It's a slide. Is it? Right? That's just what he does. He's like, oh, no, mom, watch this. Whoop. Over and over again. Day after day. Time after time. They're having a good time in the worst of places. Because of hope. Because Jesus shows up. So our action step is this, friends. Just do what Mary taught Jesus to do. Pray the prayer of Mary. Pray the prayer of our Lord and Savior Jesus each day. Let it be with me according to whose will? Your will. God's will. Tish Warren says, The God we pray to, friends, is the God who loves us endlessly, relentlessly, 
patiently and powerfully. That's our God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.